I'm Anton Hellner. And I'm Teresa Chan. And And this this is the Journal Jam Podcast, where we blend interviews with leading researchers of important emergency medicine journal articles with the Annals of Emergency Medicine and Academic Life in Emergency Medicine Joint Global Emergency Medicine Journal Club. And the best of crowdsourced social media-based opinions of emergency medicine providers from around the world. In this first ever episode of the Journal Jam podcast, Teresa and I are super stoked to talk about the potential for age-adjusted D-dimer to rule out pulmonary embolism in low-risk patients over the age of 50. Now, we all know from experience that PE can be excruciatingly difficult to diagnose clinically because the symptoms and signs are often nonspecific and overlap with a whole slew of other diagnoses like pneumonia, for example. For years, we've been using the WELL score to help us categorize patients as low, medium, or high risk, and then use it to help us decide which patients we might be able to rule out PE with a negative D-dimer. So the problem till now has been that the older the patient, the more likely the D-dimer is to be positive, whether they have a PE or not. So many of us have thrown the D-dimer out the window in older patients and go straight to CTPA, which, if you're a risk-averse doc, might lead to overutilization of resources, huge costs, increased length of stay, increased radiation effects, etc. And if you're not so risk-averse, then you might miss PEs in older patients, and we don't want that to happen either. So the format of this podcast is that Charisse and I will give you a bit of background on the Adjust PE trial. We'll describe the paper itself, and then we'll jump into the interview that Sam Shake. Anand Swaminathan and Salim Rizé from Academic Life and Emergency Medicine do with Jeff Klein, who's the vice chair for research at the Indiana University of School of Medicine and probably the world's most important researcher in thromboembolic disease from an emergency medicine perspective, as well as Jonathan Kirshner, assistant professor of EM and the director for the IUSM EBM course, also from Indiana University. Then we'll give you highlights of crowdsourced opinions on the paper from the Allium blog and glue it all together in the end with the key take-home points. So without further ado, the case scenario to start you thinking about age-adjusted D-dimer. So let's say the 60-year-old woman doesn't have cancer, doesn't have a history of thromboembolism, has had no recent surgery, no real risk factors for PE, But she comes in complaining of non-positional pleuritic chest pain and vague shortness of breath, a dry cough with no hemoptysis, and she has normal vital signs. Your D-dimer cutoff is 500, and her result comes back at 590. Would you get a CT pulmonary angiogram to rule out PE? So now that the listeners have a case to think about, Teresa, can you just give us a little bit of background and context on the age-adjusted D-dimer? I know there's been a whole bunch of retrospective studies on this, but this is the first prospective study. The topic of age-adjusted D-dimer cutoffs has been in literature for quite some time, largely coming out of Europe. The premise behind the age-adjusted D-dimers is simply that with age comes increased clot formation and breakdown, and that results in higher endogenous levels of D-dimers. They're nonspecific for venous thromboembolism, or VTE. In retrospective studies, the pooled sensitivity of D-dimer is about 98 to 99%, regardless of the age of the patient for VTE diagnoses. But with increasing age, there's a dramatic change in specificity. A meta-analysis of D-dimer studies showed that pooled specificity of patients over 50 years old 
was around 67% compared to patients who are 80 years old, which resulted in a specificity of 15%. So there's a dramatic decrease in specificity as you age. Doma et al. in 2010 performed a retrospective study of low-risk PE patients and originally derived the simple age-adjusted D-dimer cutoff, which is D-dimer cutoffs should be a person's age multiplied by 10. So if someone's 60 years old, their age-adjusted G-dimer will be 600. If they're 80 years old, it'll be 800. Exactly. And if they're 84, it's 840. Okay. Yeah. Then Joten et al. completed a systematic review and meta-analysis on the same question. In their systematic review and meta-analysis, they attempted to lend credence to the idea that age-adjusted cutoffs for D-dimer in low-probability VTE patients was a thing that we could pull off. Okay. So you have some retrospective studies there. And then this study, the ADJUST trial, is the first prospective study to test this. Exactly. Okay. Teresa, let's run through for our listeners the PICO of this study. That is the population, intervention, control, and outcome. Okay. So the population was 3,346 consecutively recruited patients presenting to European emergency departments with chest pain or shortness of breath of unknown etiology. Wow, so this is a huge study, more than 3,000 patients. Yeah, sort of. While it seems like an impressive number of patients, not all of them were in the population of interest. Namely, the group who were, one, low risk for PE, two, above the age of 50, and three, had a D-dimer of greater than 500, but less than their age multiplied by 10. Okay, so this is sort of a small percentage of the people that we do see that we're thinking of working up for PE. So roughly, give or take, about 10%. Here, Dr. Kirshner is going to comment from the Google Hangout on the size of the study. 3,000 number is a little bit misleading in the sense of that's all patients that were evaluated, and that included a number of high-probability patients based on the two-level Wells score or revised Geneva score. So that was a, a large number of patients that were actually questioning, and we really want to focus on the patients that we have this question about. So it's the, the non-high-probability patients, and of that subset, 300 had the, around 300, I think 330 maybe, had that D-dimer below the age-adjusted cutoff. Okay, so it's also important to emphasize that the average age of this population was 63 years old and that these older patients were deemed not to be high risk for PE. So just like we wouldn't apply a D-dimer for a patient who has an obvious PE, who's very at high risk for PE normally in younger patients, uh, it was true for this population as well. So none of these patients were high risk for PE. That is no history of thrombosis, no cancer, no coagulation disorder, and not perioperative. Okay, so that's the population. Teresa, what was the intervention in this ADJUST trial? The intervention was the age-adjusted D-dimer cutoff that we've been talking about, age times 10, if you were greater than 50 years old. It's important to note here that they also used a number of different D-dimer assays. It wasn't just one across all of the study sites. Okay. And next in the PICO, we've talked about population. We've talked about the intervention. What about control? Was there a control group in this study? There wasn't really a control group at all. No. It is, after all, a diagnostic study, and most diagnostic studies don't have really a control group. It's not like your usual study design where you're actually intervening with a drug and you need a placebo. So in this case, it's not quite the same. So the last thing in the PICO is the outcome. Teresa, 
can you tell us what the outcome was in this study and if there were any major problems with it? Yeah, so the outcome in the study was a safe discharge, i.e. no DBTRP during a three-month follow-up period, as assessed by both documentation interactions with the medical system and or a phone interview. Anton, so now we know a little bit about the PICO question and the study design. So what did they find out in this study? So, Teresa, the key result in this study was that using the age-adjusted cutoff instead of the usual 500 micrograms per liter cutoff increased the proportion of patients in whom PE could be excluded on the basis of the D-dimer from 6% to about 30% without any additional false negative findings. So this is a pretty big difference, more than a 20% difference. The authors claimed that in patients over 75 years old, the age-adjusted cutoff increased the proportion of patients in whom PE could be ruled out without further imaging five-fold. Not only that, but they noted that the failure rate of the age-adjusted cutoff was only 1 in 331 patients, about 0.3%. So that's only one patient who had an age-adjusted D-dimer under the cutoff value who actually had a PE. Dr. Kirchner is going to give his comments about the total number of events, which was only one. Not just the total number of patients is important, the number of events is important as well. So when you only have one miss out of 330, that's, that's not a large number of events. And that, that tells me one of two things. Either we need to do this study in a larger population, try to capture more events, because you know we misclassify one patient, that doubles the event rate. So that's concerning too for me is the number of events that were so small and that's why I'd like to see a larger study to feel more confident. That being said, in my already non-high risk patient, I'm already less concerned and now I feel that I'm still having a relatively high sensitive test. Even if the sensitivity is not quite as high as reported by the ADJUST PE trial, I still feel that it's adequately high to not proceed with a further testing with a CT pulmonary angiogram. So, Sam, why don't you go ahead and kick us off with the first question, and we'll see what what everyone has to say. Okay. For question one, we asked, the median age of this study population was 63 years old, which is older than most American populations which are tested for PE. What effect might the older population studied have on the diagnostic accuracy of the D-dimer assay? And what effect might the older age have on the overall findings of the study? And here's Jonathan Kirshner. The average age in U.S. study populations tends to be much more middle-aged, and the mid-40s is typically the average age. So this is almost a 20-year difference in your your average age of the study population. This is probably going to affect the calculated sensitivities from the study. The reason lies really in what we call spectrum effects, often called spectrum bias. But essentially, when the severity of a disease lies across a continuum or a spectrum, as is, is true in pulmonary embolism, the more severe presentations will be a little bit easier to identify for a diagnostic test. And, and this is probably true as well for D-dimer. So if you have a patient spectrum that is sicker in general, you're probably going to have a higher sensitivity when comparing the exact same test in a, a population where the spectrum of disease is less severe. And age is a direct correlate with severity of disease, at least in terms of prevalence of pulmonary embolism. The prevalence is significantly higher as we, as we age, and sometimes you know, tenfold higher between a middle-aged population and elderly population. So that can certainly affect the way the test performs. 
And that was, for me, one of the more significant issues with this study. And here's what Dr. Jeff Klein has to say about how the age difference between Europe and North America affects the age-adjusted D-dimer. The data in the United States really support what you're talking about, Jonathan, which is that the older people have bigger PEs that are easier to pick up at the D-dimer. So you might be right. We might see a few more false negatives in the United States. That is possible. I still think there'll be small PEs and don't necessarily need to be treated. The one other thing is there's just fewer older people here so that the incremental advantage that they saw in Europe might be a little less, meaning that there's less rule-out power of that age times 10 here than there would be there. Still, I think it's ready for prime time and it's the right thing to do. Swami, what you got for us for the next question? We asked, although all of the D-dimer assays used in this study had the same cutoff of 500 micrograms per liter for an abnormal value, many other quantitative D-dimer assays have different cutoffs of abnormal. So what is the basis for the difference in the cutoffs, and can the results be translated for the D-dimer that was used here to the D-dimers that we're using in the U.S. or in our shops? Let me take a stab at that. I think that's one of the biggest problems we have here, and uh, it seems to be echoed by a survey that we did of about 950 emergency physicians. On average, they rated this as a significant problem to patient safety. The problem is that somewhere around half of D-dimers that are used for PE have a different threshold than um, 500 nanograms per ml. Now, interestingly, out of all of the studies are all of the assays that are approved by FDA, most of them have a cutoff of 500, those that have an indication for use for diagnosis exclusion of DTE, all except one, and that's the hemocyl assay, which is a 230 nanogram cutoff. So what's left to be found is whether we can take like the hemocyl assay and just do age times five, for example. But that hasn't been done yet, so it leaves a question for a lot of people out there with D-dimer assays that don't cut off at 500 and cut off at a lower point. Remember, a lot of those, by the way, are not cleared by FDA for diagnosis exclusion of BTE, but your pathologist has decided to use it anyway. I think what was very interesting from that survey you mentioned, Jeff, was that 80% of physicians didn't know what assay their department was using. So I think it's important to know what test you're using if you're going to choose to use an age-adjusted cutoff, starting with just looking at your own lab. Dr. Kirshner brings up a really good point, because I think it's really important to know what test you're using locally. I'm at a center that prides itself on its thrombosis research, so I definitely get memos about any changes to the D-dimer assay because it's definitely something that's of importance around here. At my hospital, North York General, I know that our cutoff is 230, not 500. Mm -hmm. But as Dr. Klein mentioned, some people who have the 230 cutoff are using age times 5 as their age-adjusted D-dimer rather than the age times 10. So there's no good evidence for this age times 5 age-adjusted D-dimer out there but I know there's a lot of practitioners who are using this at the bedside. So even though in this study, it was a large European multi-center study and they used various different D-dimers, I think that it's still important to know whether or not your D-dimer matches one of the ones in the study if you're going to be applying this specific study to your practice. If this is going to be a practice-changing study for you, I think you kind of have to look into whether or not the one that you have is one of the ones they use in the study. So let's hear what Dr. Klein has to say about standardizing D-dimer like an INR would be standardized. 
And I think the FDA needs to get on this, impose a rule that requires something like an INR or D-dimer. Although FDA's position is we can't tell companies what to do, so it really has to come a grassroots effort from people like us to tell the companies to force them to do it. The FDA actually doesn't have the power to, but they can certainly give what's called industry guidance for future D-dimers. But those that are out there, the only way they're going to change is by pressure from consumers. All right, so for our third question, I'll go ahead and go with this one. We're talking about prevalence of disease in the study population and how that will directly affect the derived positive and negative predictive values, or the so-called post-test probabilities. So the prevalence of PE in this study was approximately 19%. And so how does that number compare with prevalence of PEs performed in other countries? And we kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier. And how does prevalence of disease in this study population affect our sensitivity and specificity for this diagnostic strategy? In the U.S. populations, we often see prevalence in the U.S. studies closer to 5%, up to 10%, but oftentimes in the single digits. So this represents, you know, maybe nearly a fourfold increase in prevalence. We're uncomfortable using predictive values derived from these studies because we know that they vary with test prevalence very simply. You know, prevalence is really looking at right number of people with disease and as the true positives increase or the more people with the disease increase, you're just going to get an artificially inflated negative and positive predictive values. So we don't like to use these predictive values derived from the tests to transport to other populations. They'll be useful in the study population. That's why we prefer sensitivity and specificity and then from that calculating likelihood ratios. Unfortunately, we don't have the information in this study to calculate positive and negative likelihood ratios because we don't really know how accurate the positive D-dimers were the D-dimer tests that were above the age-adjusted threshold. So we don't know that, that information. We can calculate a range. However, in fact, sensitivity and specificity are also not stable depending on prevalence. So, for example, as we discussed earlier with the age question, as the prevalence increases then and the severity and spectrum of the disease uh, worsens or increases, the performance of that diagnostic test will again change. And in fact, the higher prevalence will again overestimate the sensitivity. So it will really produce a very good rule out test, whereas if used in a lower prevalence population, it may not be as highly sensitive and it may not be as good of a rule out test. On the blog for Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, Anton Hellman mentioned that in the original Wells landmark study that the prevalence of PE in Canada although an older trial was closer to 9.5%. And so that's kind of closer to that 5 to 10% range you're quoting for the U.S. And this study was 19%. It looks like depending on what studies you look at in Europe, it, it can be anywhere from like the, like I guess, low to mid-20s up to the 30% range. That's right. And if you look at their studies, their prevalence is coming down. And in a few years, it'll be in the teens. And I remember talking to Mark Regini about maybe 10 years ago, and he said, Europe would never see prevalences in the teens. <laughs> and um, they, they are seeing them in the teens. And I think they're going to continue to go down as they become more Americanized in the way they use emergency departments. Mm -hmm. Remember, in Europe, they used to have this high esteem of being a family practice or general practitioner where you went and took care of your town. And they made pretty good money. They worked hard, but they were really held in high esteem. But young people don't want to do that job anymore. 
So they're losing their primary care circuit that was so strong and powerful for many, many, many decades, and they're becoming much more Americanized and more dependent on their emergency departments. You can just see them become more with lower and lower prevalences. The next study they do, I bet, will be 15%, and soon it'll be below 10. If you go and hang out in a French emergency department, which I've done with my friend Pierre Marie Wah, where my daughter used to go spend the summers at his home, and his daughter would come spend her summers at, at our home. We did a daughter switch. If you go there, many of the patients that come in for PE workups were referred by doctors. A lot of them have already had a D-dimer when they get to the emergency department, but that is changing. They are much more getting more like where people come off the street because they're not feeling as well today as they did yesterday, and they're facing what we face in the American emergency departments. So I think we'll see their prevalence come down. But for now, I think that they've done the best uh, D-dimer adjust study that can be done, and I think it's ready for prime time in the United States, despite the differences in populations. I'm curious if it's uh, also an issue of values, differences between the different regions, uh, mm -hmm. meaning uh, is the values more focused on eliminating overdiagnosis and overtreatment? Are they comfortable with a greater degree of uncertainty? It seems in the United States what we're striving for is zero. And uh, with imperfect tests, we're not going to get to zero without harming a, a decent number of people along the way. So my uh, bias is frequently that the values of the United States is to eliminate all risk, and other countries seem to have a little bit less risk aversion. But again, this is only my hypothesis. One of the other reasons that the prevalence in Europe is higher than North America may be that access to CTPA is not as readily available. I have to say that was actually the thing that was surprising about the comments from Canada that their rates pretty close to ours. I would have thought that they would have been more like the European model, more with a higher prevalence in their population than we are. I thought they'd be less risk averse than we are, but I'm kind of surprised. And unfortunately, I think uh, what Jeff is saying means that we're all sort of coming down to this very much lower prevalence. So we're all going to be over investigating as things shift. It's very disconcerting. I was kind of hoping that we'd go the other way, but obviously that doesn't seem like it's what's going to happen. Jeff's insights are really great because I think I always thought, and I'm sure a lot of American physicians always thought, the reason why we're having so many of these subsegmental, these low-risk patients that we're investigating is because we were worried about all the medical legal issues. But what Jeff is sort of saying is that this is actually a failure of primary care. So in a place where you have a little bit better of a primary care system, where people are being screened better outside before they come to the emergency department, you see a, a higher prevalence overall because you're investigating higher-risk people, whereas we're not getting that screening before they come in. It's like the same thing in Canada. These patients are coming in right off the street, not having seen anyone, not being referred. Very different population, okay. not just for PE, but a lot of different things. So to take it home for Canadians, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that in the Canadian population, Canadians love their emergency departments, which means that we do see a different population than the Europeans are reporting in their studies, at least. And that usually means that we have patients who are less likely to have the disease to begin with because they often come in very either early in their disease process or they may not have the disease that you have in mind that is the catastrophic emergency disorder that we are there to keep an eye out for. Question number four here. So we asked basically, would you change your practice based on this study? Assuming that you had one of the six study D-dimer assays, 
So I'm comfortable using the age-adjusted D-dimer cutoff, although maybe not only based on this study result. So this single study for me is maybe not enough, but in addition to the larger numbers of retrospective results that we've seen from other publications, which align with the high sensitivity of this approach in the ADJUST PE trial, I do use the age-adjusted cutoff. Now, where I work at Methodist Hospital in Indianapolis, we use the hemocil assay, and that's the one that uses D-dimer units and has a cutoff of 230. And so the question then is, well, do I do the age times five cutoff? And the answer is yes, but with some caveats. And a number of the posts from the Allium website had similar feeling, which was, I'm going to look at my patient and determine if I think that they're low risk. And if they're in the low risk range, I'll probably use an age-adjusted cutoff. And if they're in sort of the high end of my non-high probability, I might be a little bit more concerned using age-adjusted cutoff, but I'm still most likely going to use it. And ultimately, I'll have a shared decision-making conversation with my patient and let the patient make the call. Still, the clinical gestalt is still king. It's still the best thing that we use, and it's still the most important part of the workup of PE. This was a comment that was made on the blog, was that, you know, there were seven deaths that were associated out of that 331 patients, and, and I guess they went back and said only one of them was due to venothromboembolism. And then they came back and said three of the other six were due to COPD by adjudication, but there was no autopsy to have those evaluated. So they were just a committee or a panel of people who retrospectively went back and said three of those six would be the COPD and not the venothromboembolism itself. Yeah, and these are the same people that say that one in three people with a COPD exacerbation has a PE, which is totally not right. You know, we're going to have to make decisions with some degree of ambiguity, and um, this is the right decision to make when the real question is, do I want to rule out PE in someone that's 70 years old, and that's the one thing I care about. Let me make sure everybody hears this, that if we take CTPA scans done in the emergency department, what's the most common emergent diagnosis the CT scan makes? It's pneumonia, about 10%. Yeah. And PE is somewhere around 6 or 7%. So there are many 70-year-olds that you want a CT scan on to figure out what's wrong with them. I, I'm not sure that, that this D-dimer is going to save a whole lot of CT scans in the United States because I think these old people get CT scans anyway. So in terms of asking, should we use the age-adjusted D-dimer in our clinical practice, this is the part of the podcast where we bring in the social media crowdsourced opinions from emergency doctors around the world. On the Allium blog posts, there were some great answers to this last question. Teresa, can you just give us some quotes of some of the Allium community and their opinions on whether they're going to use the age-adjusted D-dimer in their practice or not? Sure. Michelle Lynn actually said, and this is a quote, As a general rule, I'm always skeptical and never the first to implement any new sweeping changes in diagnostic tests. That being said, I will calculate the age-adjusted normal cutoff for patients with their age greater than 50 and factor it in with caution, meaning that if I'm anywhere on the fence about it, I'll err on the side of obtaining a CTPA to rule out PA. So that's what Michelle Lin had to say, the chief editor from the Academic Life and Emergency Medicine blog. 
Dr. Minla Kong, a critical care guru from Down Under, said, I think this study helps to bring the disparate assays for D-dimer back to a minimum standard and use a cutoff that's sensible and individualized to a degree. Brent Toma weighs in, and he has a slightly different opinion. He wrote, my bottom line on this study and the other data on D-dimers is that age-adjusted D-dimers are probably a good idea. However, I do not think that adjust PE study proved this strategy's safety beyond a questionable doubt. I wanted to love this study and its conclusions, but I can't. And then Anand Senthi chimes in and says, quote, I think when considering this question, one should consider the broader context that this sits within that there's no good evidence that the investigation of patients who are at low risk for PE provides them with a net benefit, and there is some evidence they're probably exposed to net harm instead. Viewed within this framework, we should be quite ready to accept age-adjusted D-dimer as it should start pushing the risk-benefit equation back towards the patient's favor. So, Teresa, we've got a whole bunch of opinions from people who are active on social media in the emergency medicine community. What's your bottom line? Are you going to be using age-adjusted D-dimer in your practice in Hamilton? So I think that one of the things to bear in mind when you make a decision about whether or not you can adopt a new strategy in your diagnostic reasoning or your practice is actually the rest of your group. And in discussions with the thrombosis team here, they're actually big skeptics of this study. And as a result, a lot of the eMERGE docs in our group are sort of still on the fence about this study. And I can see why. There are some really strong strengths to this study, but then there are some glaring weaknesses. And the problem with it is that it doesn't directly answer the question of whether or not I can apply this strategy to my patient population. It's so Canadian to be sitting on the fence, eh? Yeah, a little bit. But at the same time, I guess what I'm saying is that Right now, with this study itself, I'm not sure that it alone will change my practice. And I think that for the purposes of this journal jam, I'm still wary that there are some glaring problems with this study that would allow it to change my practice. I think that much like Jonathan Kirshner had said, you have to interpret this study within the body of the rest of the literature. And I actually do think that there is some really interesting research that's coming down the line from a North American stance that might answer this question some more. So, Teresa, despite the fact that I'm Canadian and I do tend to be conservative, I do also like to be enthusiastic about new things in the emergency department. But for the age-adjusted D-dimer, I think that I will use it in my clinical practice, but I won't use it as a black and white yes or no It'll be just one of the factors I'll consider among many others. Again, just like Dr. Kirshner said, gestalt is king. And if my gut is telling me that this patient does not have a PE and the age-adjusted D-dimer also tells me that the patient does not have a PE, then I'm going to go with it. But if my gut is on the fence about it, and the age-adjusted D-dimer is kind of borderline, then I think I'm with Michelle Lynn on this one. I'm just going to go ahead and order the CT. So let's talk take-home points. The main take-home point from the study itself is that applying an age-adjusted D-dimer cutoff to rule out PE in non-high-risk patients over the age of 50 increases the specificity of the D-dimer without significantly decreasing the sensitivity. 
for the clinicians out there, I think that we have a couple of take-home points that we wanted to reiterate. And the first is that context is definitely queen. She kind of runs the show. You need to know the disease prevalence and the patient population you serve. And you need to know things like what D-dimer they're running upstairs in the lab. So context is definitely queen. I love that. Context is queen. Well, I'll get you back one, and that is clinical gestalt is still king, just like Dr. Kirshner said. You know, you just got to listen to your gut. Definitely. And then at the end of the day, patients are not pawns. So I think we have to bring them into the decision and all of these studies that we read, we have to translate that into something meaningful and bring our patients into the decision-making process. So in the chess game of emergency medicine, context is queen, clinical gestalt is still king, and your patients certainly are not pawns in the game. On the Google Hangout, Jeff Klein makes a shout out to Dr. Kirsten DeWitt from the Divisions of Thrombosis and Emergency Medicine at McMaster University. She's a new rising star in Canadian thrombosis research, and she's kindly peer-reviewed this podcast for us. She brought up some really interesting points about the role of VQ scan versus CTPA in the workup, which will be posted on the EM Cases show notes. We invite you to add your two cents about age-adjusted D-dimer on the EM Cases website or on the Allium blog. Well, that about wraps it up for this journal, Jam. Next time, we're going to be talking about spontaneous pneumothoraces. Teresa and I are just going to leave you with something to remember for next time. Let's keep on jamming on the journal, Jam. Remember, you don't have to nerd out alone. Together, we're smarter. And here's a little public service announcement. If you're looking for a podcast to tell you what to do then Journal Jam probably isn't for you. But if you're looking for a podcast that's going to get you to think, then Journal Jam just might be your link to the latest landmark studies in emergency medicine. Journal Jam. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about the yeah, but... <laughs> Or you can do the little Journal Jam, like with the, like the slowing down of the... <laughs> Journal Journal. <laughs> Something like that. I don't know. You're the sound effects guy. <laughs> yeah.